Alrighty, Colossians chapter 1 is where we are going to be this morning. So we venture out of verses 1 and 2 and venture into the rest of the book. Let's read God's word, verses 3 through 8 is where we're going to be reading through and looking at this morning. Listen to God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. Well, we venture into our third part of our series now, walking through this book or this letter of Paul to the people of Colossae or to the church there in Colossae. And, and I'm going to get to preaching as we understand preaching in just a minute. But I want to, for your benefit, Lord willing, walk through and just do a, a brief outline of what's going on in this passage in the hopes that I can give you an example of kind of a way in which to outline passages of Scripture. Verses 3 through 8, Paul is a propositional writer. And he's, he flows from one statement to the next, and they build upon one another. And so if you study particularly New Testament books... It is helpful to know and to follow that outline and those propositional statements as they build on one another. So let's do this real quick. Let me walk through verses 4 or 3 through 7 and look at how the outline and the logical flow of thought goes with this section, this, this paragraph. Something, it says there in verse 3, has driven Paul to, when he prays, be what? Thankful. So we see that that is the beginning of what's going on. Paul is a thankful man. He's giving thanks to God in his prayers. Now, here's the question. Why is Paul thankful? That's a good question because he answers it in verse 4. Verse 4, Paul now tells us why he's thankful. Because of the church of Colossae's faith in Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. Now, as you move through propositional statements, as a man who's building upon what he's saying. And so it's a good, you can ask why again. So why are the Colossian people full of faith? And overflowing with love. Well, it says it in verse 5. Because the hope laid up in heaven. Now, then we go on and we move out from that verse. And we ask again another question. How do we know about their hope is in heaven? Or how do they know that their hope is in heaven? And verse 5 continues and tells us why. Because they have heard of their hope in heaven through the word of truth that is the gospel. Finally, we ask one more question. How do they know the gospel, the word of truth? Because a man named Epaphras has come to proclaim the gospel to them. So if you're studying this in your own devotional life, those are great questions to ask. You simply start with outlining very clearly, and often it's very helpful as you walk through your study of Scripture to, in your own words, state with each thing that's being said there and communicated. And, and then outline for yourself, what is the flow of thought here? And what we see as we do that little exercise as pastors and preachers often do at the beginning of a week when they begin to study on a piece of scripture and try to figure out what's the central theme going on in this passage. And I think what, is, what comes to the forefront becomes obvious is that at the center of this text and this paragraph is this word hope. That the theme that is going on in these verses is Christian hope. 
Verse 3 and verse 4 lead up to the hope they have in heaven. And there's verses 5 through 7 reflect and flow out of how they have hope or why they have hope in heaven. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. This, these last, these four or five verses communicate to us and help us understand what the Christian hope is. And so let's spend the rest of our time this morning drawing out, exposing, expounding on what Paul is saying about the Christian's hope. First and foremost, we begin with this. If you like outlines, we go like we're going this way this morning. The certainty and content of Christian hope. Second, the fruit of Christian hope. And then third, the source of Christian hope. Begin with the certainty and context, content of Christian hope. There is a significant difference, isn't there, between the way the Bible talks about hope and the way we normally use the word hope in our language. The Greek word that, under, that undergirds hope is used 80 times in the New Testament, but frankly, our English word hope takes it somewhat differently, or at least it, we don't do a good job enough translating it into our culture's language because hope has come to mean in our society, and the way, just our language, is it means more like wishing. I wish that would happen. If you hope for something, you're wishing for it. For instance, I'm hoping the Florida Gators win the SEC this year. Now, I don't think it's likely, but I'm hoping for it anyways. It is a wish is more of how we refer to it. But that is not how hope is talked about in the New Testament and really throughout Scripture. When we read the hope, word hope in the Bible, there is almost always certainty connected to it. It is not wishful thinking. It is sure and certain thinking. Here's an illustration or an example of such a thing. 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, does it say, set your hope on the grace that might, might be brought to you when Jesus is revealed? No, it is a definitive statement. It will be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. Christian hope, we can define it this way, and I'm going to ask you to define it yourself in your own study guide later on. But Christian hope is the sure and certain expectation of a desired future that is anchored upon and fixed upon God's word, God's work, and God's character. Repeat that. Christian hope is the sure and certain expectation of a desired future that is anchored and fixed upon God's word, work, and character. Now, what we see here in this passage is that Christian hope, not only is there content, and we're going to look at the content in just a second, but it has a location, doesn't it? It is installed somewhere out there. And what we see here is our location of our hope. The reason why our hope is certain is because of where it is stored. Where is our hope stored? It says it very clearly there in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Verse 5 says, faith and love spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. The Greek word for stored up or laid up is the word apokokamenein, which is a participle, which means that it is both now, it's a present reality and a future reality. It is right now, your hope is stored up for you in heaven at this moment. We're not waiting for some future day. It is there right now. In the world, if you want your money to be safe, if you want to store up or lay up your money in this world, you put it in the bank. And the highest place, the best place to put your money in a bank, supposedly, is a Swiss bank, right? Now, listen, the Swiss Alps are beautiful, and their banks are very secure, but it doesn't have anything on the beauty of heaven and the security of heaven, It is far better, and our hopes are stored up in the bank that is called heaven. 
God's dwelling place. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon on Christian hope says there are three things that you need to know about Christian hope and they're this. First is your bad things will turn out for the ultimate good. Second, your good things can never be taken away from you. And third, the best things are yet to come. That'll preach right there. That's a good word from Mr. Edwards. Our hope is sure, it is certain, it is coming to us. The best things are yet to come because all that we long for is stored up and they can never be taken away because they are located in the vaults of heaven in the very person of Christ himself. Now this begs the question, if our hope is stored up in heaven, what is our hope then? It says, it tells us the certainty of it and where it's located, but actually this passage doesn't tell us what is the content of our hope. So we have to look to other places in Scripture. Let me run through this very, very quickly, through other, other locations within the New Testament to talk about what is stored up for us in heaven, what we look forward to and what we desire to to get there and receive in heaven. First and foremost, we hope for Jesus. Titus 2.13, follow along with these on the scriptures because they're coming fast. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we look forward to one day, what we long for and desire for is Jesus himself. Second, we hope for righteousness. Galatians 5.5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness you're struggling with sin if you're like me week in and week out you go how long oh lord will these things dog me there will be a day there will be a day when you'll be perfectly righteous and not simply before the lord but you will be actively righteous your life will be perfect third we hope for an inheritance Ephesians, both Ephesians 1, 18 and 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 point to this. The hope to which he has called you, it says in Ephesians 1, 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And in 1 Peter 1, it says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. We have an inheritance waiting for us, and that inheritance is all of creation. It's going to be given to us. Fourth, we see that we have hope for eternal life. Titus 3, 7 says it so, that having been justified by his grace, we become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We hope for salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put it on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, this hope of salvation. Your helmet in this world to protect you from the demons that would sling something right at your head and seek to concuss you spiritually is the hope of your salvation to come. Lastly, we hope for a new creation and we hope for new bodies. Romans 8, 23 through 25, not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What are we longing for? What is creation longing for? The redemption of our bodies, the redemption of this whole world. Now, one last thing that needs to be said here, because we assume it when we use the word hope, but it's of incredible importance, and we'll come back later on as we seek to apply hope to the development of our faith. What needs to be said and what is often assumed is that hope inevitably and inherently involves desire. You desire something in the future. You're not hoping for something you don't want to get. 
When you hope, you are looking forward and you are longing for something. In this case, in this case, as you look for and you hope in heaven for salvation and for righteousness and for the presence of God and for new bodies and a new creation. It is something that you long for and you desire. Therefore, Christian hope is the eager and certain expectation that we will receive the things we most long for in this world. The things we most long for and desire. Now, back to our text. As we took some rabbit trails there for a few minutes. What we see is that Paul says that Christian hope, this thing is certain. It's certain to come in the future. But what we also see is that his future hope leads to some present realities and present behaviors in our life right now. What does it say in verse 5? Why is he thankful? He is thankful for the Colossian church because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. And then he uses this key word, because of their hope. What undergirds the Colossians' faith and love for Jesus Christ is their hope. The Greek word for stored up or laid up, as I said earlier, is a, it's a present reality that looks, it's also going to happen in the future, but it is still present We can live as if what we long for is currently ours right now. And here we begin to see the incredible power of hope in our life for today. We are ultimately and we are unavoidably shaped by what we long for in the future. The way you live today is completely almost in reaction to what we want in the future. How we handle today's circumstances has to do with what we view and see as going to be coming to us down the pike. Hope completely changes the game for today. For today. It is not some ethereal thing that we look forward to in the future. Now think with me on this. There are two aspects of hope that I've pointed out. You have to have the desire for something. But then you also have to, at least in Christian hope, have a certainty that you will receive your, the thing that you most desire. Now think with me of a few places in life in which the way this plays out in simply our smaller, just worldly hopes. If you're a college student here today and you want to be, your great desire is to be an architect. That's going to greatly affect how you spend your time in your life today. If that's your great desire is to be an architect, and it is within your means, it is achievable for you, which means you have the brain capacity actually to be an architect, it is going to radically shape what you do on Friday nights. Because when you have opportunities to go spend your time willy-nilly doing all sorts of things, you're going to say, no, my great desire is to be an architect, and so tonight I'm going to stay in the study and I'm going to work. It's going to affect how you live and function today. At the same time, some of you are getting ready to get married. And what happens when you fix a day? You start to take action, don't you? Uh-oh, May 3rd is coming. I better get a place. I better get a preacher. I better get a dress. I've got to take some action in what I do today. Why? Because I'm looking forward to the future day that is now fixed on my calendar. This is great application for us as Christians, particularly for you Christians that are struggling and feel like the devil is crushing you right now or simply life circumstances are going to press on you in, in a ways that you can't understand and bear. There's a great hymn by a guy named Ralph Vaughn Williams entitled for all the saints and i believe the fourth verse it goes this way and when the strife is fierce the warfare long steals on the ear the distant triumph song then hearts are brave again and arms are strong what's he saying 
He's saying, listen, right now, in the midst of the battle, you may feel like you're being crushed and you may be tempted to give up. But if you hear the resounding sound of God's promises of his salvation that are rounding the bend with the armies of God, then you can take up your arms and you can fight today again. You know, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings. Is this getting cliche? There's a scene in Lord of the Rings where the the army, they're about to be destroyed. A great demon is leading the armies of Mordor against the peoples, and they are crushing them and defeating them in battle. And then all of a sudden, what do they hear? Crusting over the hills, they hear the horns of the army of Rohan. And what do they do? They have been running and fleeing from the enemy, and all of a sudden they can turn and they can face and they can run right towards them. It's a beautiful picture Are you hearing the echoes of the army of God that claims, it says, one day, one day you will hear these perfectly. But the scriptures blare very loudly the salvation that is on the way and that is at your your hand right now. This is great for those of you that are in the midst of suffering. Stand up, wake up tomorrow, and hear the trumpet sounds of the gospel hope that is yours. You're getting crushed by sin It feels like you cannot defeat the addictions in your life. You stand up, not by your own strength, but because you hear the peals of God's promises resounding over the hills. Our hopes for the future are the compelling force for today's actions. We absolutely must have it. Now, how does hope, let's talk about this and apply it to exactly as Paul applies it here in Colossians. How does hope stored up in heaven produce faith in Christ Jesus today? Hope involves both the longing for something and the confident expectation that you will have what you long for and you desire. Therefore, hope produces faith because our desire for something, and remember, hope involves desire, our desire for something is going to make us look for that which will help us achieve the desired end. Did you follow that? That if you want this out here in the future, You're going to look for the the means necessary. If you want to be an architect, you're going to look for studies and books and teachers, the means necessary to get you here. In the same way, that's how it works with hope. If you desire to be with God forever and eternity, well, guess what? Here's the gospel, and this is the bad news first. There's nothing that will get you that except for one thing, and that's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The more you desire and you hope for something in the future, the more important the means of reaching the desired end will be to you. Let me say it negatively. I have, I have no reason to put, to, have, to put my faith and trust in bungee cords. You know why? Because I have no desire to go bungee jumping. Bungee cords have nothing to do with me. I don't need to put my faith and trust in bungee cords. They're useless to me. But when the only thing, when your longing is Jesus, when your longing is a new creation and a new body and to be restored and to spend all eternity with a holy God, there's only one thing that gets you there. And so the more that your desire for the future is the presence of God, then the more you'll put your faith and trust in the only one who will get you there, which is the Son of God. All right, so that's faith. And what about the other one? What about love for all the saints? How does hope in heaven lead to love for the saints? You know, it's fairly famous, I've mentioned it multiple times over my time here, about the Christians in the early church and what they were famous for during Roman times, that when the plagues, the great plagues that often 
were scourges on human history when the great plagues would hit the cities and thousands upon thousands would get sick and die and the rich and the wealthy would flee. Anybody who could get out of the cities would run away. But the Christians were famous for staying. And they didn't run away. They stayed and they cared for the dying and for the sick, knowing that it may cost them their life. Now, was it because Christians were just naturally more loving? Were these people just more virtuous? Did they not have a sense and understanding of how germs worked? No, the issue was that they had a hope for a life eternal. That they didn't cling to this hope or to this life right now, but they looked to the life that is theirs in ahead. The greater desire was not to cling to the 70 years they had here. The greater desire was to cling to the eternal life that was theirs in Christ Jesus. And what that led them to do was to be loving today. This is the same way for us as Christians. How can we be loving and caring to one another? See, so many of you, you can't actually care for other brothers and sisters in Christ, and you can't actually care for people in your city because you are so bent. You have to work 70 hours a week to make the six-figure salary. And because of that, it is all about your earthly, worldly, today's needs. And your greater desire is not storing up riches in heaven, but it's storing up riches on this earth. It doesn't free you to actually love people because you're spending all your time gathering money. Some of you, your acceptance is not in the work of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're not looking forward right now. You're not looking to the righteousness of Christ that is yours today, but you're also not looking forward to the righteousness of Christ where you'll be completely perfect at the end of all time when he returns, but you're relying upon yourself. You're relying upon all that you can do. And therefore, here's what this leads to, is you can't be a very loving person in Christian circles because you can't allow for any intimacy in which people can know you and know that there's broken parts of you. Because your acceptance and your worth is my righteousness and what I can do instead of looking to the hope for righteousness that is yours at the end of all things. As great effect is how we live today. See, the problem for, for us is not that we are too heavenly minded. It's that we're way too earthly minded. Have you ever run into somebody who's way too heavenly minded? No, you haven't. You can't think of somebody. They don't exist, I don't think. There are those that would claim that they, you, know, you can be so heavenly minded that you can be of no earthly good. This is silliness. Or it appears to be so, in that I have never run into anybody who has that problem. Instead, what we often do is we get distracted by small hopes. Now, they may not be sinful things or bad things, but they are lesser hopes. That my children would get a really good job. That's a, that's a really good hope. That's a great desire. But if that becomes your preeminent desire, guess what? That's going to wreak havoc on the rest of your Christian life. You've got to look to the ultimate hopes, the ultimate realities. Too many of us, too many of us have grown, our desires fall way too short of what God offers. They're way too tangible and way too earthy and way too for now. Colossians 3, 2, later on in this book, Paul says this, set your mind on things above. Are you heavenly minded or are you earthly minded? When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, what do you set your mind on? Is it the do list or is it the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ? Ouch. Third, the source of our Christian hope 
How do we grow in this? How do we grow in our desire for heaven? How do we grow in a hope that actually would lead to living out faith in Jesus Christ today and a sacrificial overflowing love for the saints today? How do we get there? What is the source of the hope that develops within us? Look at verse 5. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, period, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Grammar lesson, what is the antecedent of this? He's pointing back to the previous sentence of this hope laid up for you in heaven. The antecedent, the thing that is they have learned about in the word of truth, in the gospel, is their hope in heaven. The source and the means by which we grow up as Christians in hope is to hear the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, here's why this, and let me, let me walk through the connection here for you and why it develops hope. Because the gospel communicates to us what is waiting for us in heaven. It tells us that there is a righteousness for us in Jesus Christ. It tells us that there's a new creation, new bodies. It tells us that we will be with God eternally, forever and ever. That's one thing it tells us. Second, it also tells us, it tells us about the beauty of the God who has saved us. The gospel reveals us to us the beauty of the goodness and majesty of God. The highest end, the highest hope of the Christian ultimately will be this. I want to be with God. I want to know him in all his character. I want the veil that keeps me from seeing him in all his glory removed. And I long to dwell and swim in, the na- in his character, getting to know him for all of eternity. That's the greatest hope for you in heaven. And the means now in which we get a foretaste of his greatness and his glory, the way in which on this earth he has most beautifully revealed himself is through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to desire eternity with God in heaven? Then you've got to know his son Jesus. The only way to know the Father is through the Son. And the only way to know the character of God is through the activity of the Son on this earth. Therefore, the gospel not only tells us what we get with the, what we hope for in the future, but it also tells us, gives us reason to desire it because we have such a desirable, beautiful God. There is no other God like this. What other God do you know? That when we were lost, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, when we were running away from him, when we were deserving, deserving of wrath, he entered into this broken world and he came and pursued you. That's a God worthy of worship. That's a God who's worthy of your desire. But finally, the gospel is the source of our hope because it makes the means of our hope certain. What did Jesus come to do? Did Jesus come, did Jesus come to die for your sins so that, and just simply offer it to you? To make it a maybe that you'll get to heaven? Or did he come to make it a certainty that you'll get to heaven? I think he came to make it a certainty. How do you get a certain hope in heaven? Now, this is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion can give you no certainty, and it makes you a very insecure person because it strips you of your hope. Religion says, hey, you've got to do this in order to be accepted. You want to be with God in eternity for all time in his presence, then you have to make yourself worthy for him. Religion, religion even says, God did 99% of it, but you've got to do 1% of it. Religion says that. The gospel says he did 100% of it. 
He purchased for you your faith. He purchased for you all your righteousness. He purchased for you your goodness before the Lord. Everything is there for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is sure and it's certain. If there is one iota that is left up to you, you'll screw it up. And it'll destroy your hope. He has made it certain. He has made it complete. One final thought, though. And we end on kind of a, not a downward note, but it's not necessarily the the gospel like I wanted to end right there, but I I feel like this, in order to follow where the text ends this morning, I want to say one more thing, and that's this. I want you to see that the source of the gospel is our hope. The way it comes to us is is it extended to us from faithful preachers of the word. And I'm not simply talking about me. Verse 6 and 7, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. If you want to grow in a hope that changes your life right now, then here's the reality, is that you need to be amongst a community of believers who will preach to you and proclaim to you and minister to you with the hope of the gospel. You want to be a means of hope in this city and in this church, a means of hope to your family and to your friends, to the people in your community group, then you have to be a minister of the gospel who extends the gospel of hope to people. If our community groups, they, they just started in the last couple of weeks, if your Christian fellowship, if all it is is a bunch of Christians getting around and awkwardly and oddly having a weird conversation about what the sermon was about, then that is not what we're after and that is not Christian fellowship. But when they become truly powerful, when something great and mighty happens in there, is when people walk in and they say, I am struggling today. Would someone give me the gospel? Preach it to me today. I am hurting here. I am suffering here. I'm struggling with sin here. Someone give me some hope to keep going on. Or the other way. They become truly effective when you walk in not simply trying to meet your own needs or simply trying to do your, your due diligence as a Christian and they told you to do this and so you've got to be a part of a community group and you check it off the list and so you go and then you're done with it but you walk in with this servant attitude is I'm going to give someone hope today. And when you see someone in, his knees, in need, you're going to address them and you're going to reach out to them with this gospel's truth as Epaphras did for the church of Colossae. People have asked me, we, we have a very simple model as a church And you may think there may not be, people have asked me how they can serve in this church, and they're always looking for some sort of official role. And maybe people are annoyed with me from saying this, but pretty much what I always want to tell them is get in a community group and actually serve the people there. You see, if you walk into those groups, if you actually walk into a relationship with people, you're surrounded by people who desperately need the hope of the gospel. In this room... There are people in our church who are struggling, who know they have cancer, who know they have a deadly disease, who our children are rebelling, whose sins are wreaking havoc on their life, and they need the hope of Jesus Christ, and you're there to give it to them. So would we love one another in this way, that you are vessels of hope, you are proclaimers of the gospel. You know, when when it talks about those who would come and give the good news, it referred to them as heralds, that's what an apostle was, that's what Epaphras is. And here's what they would come in. They'd come into a city. Normally, their heralds were coming in to announce the, the news of what has happened in some great battle. Here's what the heralds of the old time would come in and, the, and do. And they would come in and they would enter into the city and they would shout to everyone who could hear it. They would say, here's the good news. He has won the war. Here's the good news. 
You say this to your brothers and sisters and say it to yourself. Here's the good news. You who were once dead in sin, he has made you alive in Christ Jesus. He has washed you with the blood of Christ. Here's the good news. You are strongly in battling with sin today, but guess what? He has promised to make all things new in your life. He has promised to complete the work that he started in you. That is the good news. And so would you please be heralds of hope? We need it in this church. I need it in this city. This world desperately needs hope. Not the small, trite things that we look to, but the hope of Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that there are a thousand small, really good hopes for which we are living our lives. Many of us are saving very, very faithfully because we hope to have a really good retirement. Many of us are working really, really, really hard to make our kids really smart. Many of us are working really, really hard at good jobs in order to be successful. And Lord, none of these things are sinful in and of themselves. But gracious God, I pray that you would give us the best hope and not simply so-so hopes. I pray that you would turn our desires away from things that are simply earthly, that when the alarm goes off on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning and on Thursday morning, that the thoughts of our minds and our hearts would be, I want to please Jesus, and I want to look to him who has won my salvation, and he is my desire. And that all other hopes would come in line in light of that. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.